The second scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew. I will read chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to divorce her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as a wife but had no marital relations with her until she had given birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'm not sure when most kids start thinking about the relationship between heredity and parents' aspirations, but my own anxiety about that goes back almost as far as I can remember. This is what Maud Newman confesses and writes about in her book, Ancestor Trouble. Maud was only three or four years old when she first asked her mom why she married her father. We were in the car, she writes, on the way to my nursery school, and I was still at that stage when small, intimately familiar things were the center of my world. Things like my mom's elegant fingers, her long coral nails, her keychain that jingled against the keys as we stopped in traffic and started again. My mom put a cigarette to her mouth and drew in the smoke. Blowing it out, she turned to me matter-of-factly, we wanted to have smart children, she said. <laughs> I'd expected her reply to be about their feelings for each other. I wanted to understand why she had liked him enough to choose him. But did you love him? I said. She took another drag. Love isn't very important, she said, exhaling again. We got married because we knew we'd have smart children together, and now we have you. Knowing that the plan to create me had united my parents, that being their progeny came with these expectations, changed my view forever, she wrote. 
Maud Newton imagines that it is probably quite common for children from a fairly young age to know some of the traits that their parents hope to see reflected in their children. In some cases, these traits may be genetically passed down, and in other cases, they may be traits that are nurtured. She knew that in addition to being smart, it was really important to her father that she have fair skin as he had. From an early age, she had no doubt in her mind that he thought white skin was superior. Birds of a feather flock together, he was fond of saying. She heard him say this over breakfast, then on their way to the swimming pool, and also in the evenings while using her mom's pale nail polish to cover the faces of brown children in their storybooks. She frequently heard the story of his triumph when, as a college student assigned to live with an Asian-American student, he marched right over to the housing office and told them that he wasn't going to live with a Chinese. Furthermore, her father always stressed to her and her sister the importance of their bloodline, being worthy of it, showing loyalty to it, and protecting the purity of it. So when her mother declared she was going to divorce him, it didn't surprise young Maud that her father, carrying the family tree around the house, tried to illustrate the scandal and the shame that divorce would bring on their blood. In the end, her parents did divorce. Although they split, she continued to worry from childhood far into adulthood about how their two bloodlines would live on in her. Was she a product of her parents? And if so, what traits would she carry on? And would they determine her destiny? You see, the more she learned about her ancestors on both her paternal and maternal sides of the family, the more she saw reason for concern. Her mother's father was said to have married 13 times and to have been shot by one of his wives. Her mother's grandfather killed a man with a hay hook and died in an institution. All the way back to an ancestor accused of being a witch in the Puritan era of Massachusetts, mental illness and religious fanaticism seemed to brew and percolate in her maternal line. Her grandmother warned her to beware of it. Nights I lay awake worrying, she wrote, what I might have inherited from my biological family, and by day I railed against determinist ideas. In coffee shops and bars and women's studies classes, I argued that everyone's personhood, our temperaments, our talents and shortcomings, nearly all of our attributes flowed from environment rather than biology. My crusade for the proposition that nurture always triumphs over nature was short-lived, a popular argument in academia at the time that I latched onto it because I was, and had always been, terrified that the opposite might be true. I worried that I might start a church in my living room the way my mother had. I worried that I might have a child as lacking in empathy as my father was. I worried that I might go crazy. I often went without sleep, occasionally for days in a row. 
she writes. Such worry is understandable. Humans have always struggled with the idea that our ancestors might determine our destiny. Perhaps this is why genealogy is one of the earliest recorded human preoccupations. Records from ancient times show how humans have relied on concepts of kinship and genealogical descent to make sense of and to provide order in our world. Of course, for most of history, such records were kept by royalty or nobility. Common people likely assumed that their ancestry was not so important to trace. Only more recently has genealogy become more democratized. Maya Angelou noticed that in 1977, the miniseries based on Alex Haley's roots gave black Americans hope that they might overcome the obstacles put in their way by slavery and actually be able to discover their own family histories. With the development of the internet and tools like Ancestry.com, genealogical research became a mainstream hobby, at least until it became tied to genetic testing. The point is that genealogical records tell of the longing people have always had to link their origins to what came before and what will come after, to their heritage and to their destiny. <coughs> this is, I think, what we find in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel begins with an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, beginning with Abraham, who was the father of Isaac, and Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, and so on. The first 17 verses of Matthew link the ancestry of Abraham eventually to King David, and King David eventually to Jesus. The long genealogy ends, however, with a problem. When the report reaches Joseph, Jesus's father, we do not read, and Joseph fathered Jesus. Instead, we read the awkward, and Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. The following verses, verses 18 through 25, which we read this morning, deal with this problem. Joseph, whom we are told is a descendant of King David, is about to break off his engagement with Mary because before they even lived together, she was found to be pregnant. If anything could disrupt a royal genealogy, it would have been the circumstance of being born out of wedlock. It is therefore remarkable that a circumstance such as this would not have disrupted the claim to a paternal lineage. This passage explains how Joseph, son of David, came to accept the infant who was conceived by the Holy Spirit as his own and to name him Jesus, just as an angel of the Lord commanded him to do in a dream. It is clear from Matthew's account that there were many expectations placed upon those who were in the Davidic line. 
the name Jesus, expresses the expectation that he will save the people. And citing Isaiah's prophecy from centuries earlier, expresses the expectation that Jesus will save the people from political disaster. But in the context of Matthew's gospel, we are not to draw a clear line from what was expected in the past to what should be expected in the future. For even the genealogy upon which Israel's social, political, and religious order had depended for 42 generations gets disrupted. The old genealogical order, while cited, is also being questioned. Just listen to what John the Baptist, Jesus' contemporary, is saying. Speaking to crowds out in the wilderness, John the Baptist says, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In his words is a challenge to the heretofore reigning reliance on genealogy. Here we have the beginnings of a spiritual democratization. Holding each person accountable for their own repentance and actions, John baptizes people one by one, and Jesus is one of them. John the Baptist knew that how we imagine our ancestors and ourselves in relation to them can have a powerful effect on the way we live. Reliance on our genealogy, he thought, has led to complacency, hypocrisy, and corruption. According to Matthew, John the Baptist's mission was to prepare the way for Jesus to offer an authentic salvation, one in which there would be no leg up due to lineage and bloodlines. Matthew tells us that conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus came to save us, not by whose flesh and blood you are descended from, but by water and the Spirit that seals our authentic identity as children of God. We all long to know where we come from. It makes sense that the journey to greater self-understanding sometimes leads us to search backward, as though if we could know everyone who led to our ancestors, who made them who they are, we would understand ourselves all the better. The good news that Matthew wants us to know is that there is no direct line from who came before us and who will come after us. From our heritage to our destiny, it is always disrupted by the Spirit who creates us and claims us most authentically as God's own. Amen.